<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SubChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, a look at this week's news. A majority of American companies in China said they don't support their president's use of retaliatory tariffs to achieve U.S. trade goals, according to a survey compiled by the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai. This year's survey, released shortly after U.S. President Donald Trump's fresh threats to impose tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods, provides a barometer of the sentiment of American multinational companies on the looming trade war. 69% of respondents said they did not support tariffs, with only 9% saying they did, and 22% who were unsure. The strongest opposition came from businesses involved in non-consumer electronics, chemicals, agriculture, and food. Support, meanwhile, came largely from those in education, training, and legal services, as they have less to lose, the report showed. New energy vehicle sales in China during the first half of the year doubled to 400,000 units, new data show. The vehicles sold over the period include 300,000 purely electrical vehicles and 100,000 hybrids, according to statistics released by the China Association of Automobile Manufacturers. The total number of passenger cars sold during the period, including new energy vehicles, was about 14 million. Since 2010, China has provided generous subsidies to promote the use of new energy vehicles, with the move away from traditional fossil fuel engines forming part of the broader effort to clean up the country's polluted air. The country's two largest players in the sector are the Beijing-based BJEV, an arm of the state-owned BAIC group, and Shenzhen-based BYD. The pair accounted for nearly 30% of sales last year. But as Beijing has hit the brakes on incentives and plans to totally phase out subsidies by 2020, the market could face tough times ahead, which could give a bigger window to companies like Tesla. Speaking of Tesla, the California-based company has signed agreements with Shanghai to set up a vehicle assembly plant that will have the capacity to produce 500,000 all-electric autos a year. The deals move Tesla a step closer to its long-sought goal of producing vehicles in China, a market that contributes more than 15% of its revenue. 
China is the world's largest and fastest growing market for electric cars and has benefited from favorable government policies. The plant will be Tesla's first overseas gigafactory, as the company calls its battery and assembly installations. It will be a wholly owned subsidiary of Tesla with integrated capacity for R&D, manufacturing, and marketing. Guangzhou's Sun Yat-sen University has suspended a professor accused of harassing and assaulting multiple women, as China continues to grapple with sexual harassment in academia. Zhang Peng allegedly stalked, molested, and threatened multiple female students and faculty members between 2011 and 2017, according to an article published on Sunday by WeChat blog The Livings. The article has since been deleted, but screenshots have continued to circulate on Chinese social media. Zhang attempted to rape a first-year student who was not named, prompting the student to report Zhang's behavior to the university. The article said, "This in turn led other women to come forward with reports of harassment and assault over many years by the 40-year-old professor, including five women who lodged a complaint against him in the university's discipline office in May." Sun Yat-sen University has now suspended Zhang from teaching. Until the accusations, Zhang was a Changjiang scholar, part of a national program that recognizes China's most prestigious academics. Four Changjiang scholars have now been publicly accused of sexual harassment or assault this year, amid a wave of allegations mirroring the Me Too movement abroad. But the response of universities to these allegations has been mixed. In a high-profile case involving former professor at Peking University, Shen Yang. Who is accused of having raped a female student and contributing to her eventual suicide? The university reportedly attempted to silence another student who asked for information about the case. Apple has said it will lead the launch of a new $300 million fund to promote clean energy in China, representing the latest green initiative in one of its largest global markets. Apple said the launch is part of a broader plan to connect its suppliers with renewable energy sources. It will team up with ten of those suppliers to create the China Clean Energy Fund, which will invest the $300 million over the next four years. The fund will focus on finance for green energy power farms such as wind and solar, with a total capacity of more than one gigawatt, or enough to power nearly one million homes. Apple has been at the forefront of a growing group of multinationals launching such projects in the important China market in a bid to show they are responsible corporate citizens. The company's latest quarterly report shows it derives about a fifth of its revenue from Greater China. It is currently China's fifth largest smartphone seller by units shipped, with 11% of the market. China is assessing the quote ideological implications of online talent shows, including those produced by internet giant Tencent and video site Aichiyi, to prevent them from becoming quote overly entertaining. Internet shows produced by the two companies, in which young performers battle to be China's next pop idols, have reportedly been suspended or had their broadcasts delayed. In an order published last week, the State Administration of Radio and Television demanded provinces from groups of quote experts. To vet online talent shows before their premiere, these examiners are expected to assess the program's quote themes, values, ideological implications, and rundowns. Close quote. The move aims at quote protecting the physical and mental health of teenagers. Close quote. The regulator said, without specifying the criteria by which such experts should be selected. The regulator said the latest decision aims to prevent content from becoming quote overly entertaining and quote advocating money worship, as well as to create a healthy online viewing environment during the summer vacation. 
Industry insiders said the new regulations aren't practical because online talent shows are produced on a very tight schedule, and their final episodes are traditionally broadcast live, so as to persuade viewers to vote in real time and boost ratings. Bike-sharing giant Ofo plans to slim down its Asia operations to four overseas markets, Japan, South Korea, Hong Kong, and Singapore, as it focuses on its most promising areas in a bid to become profitable, a knowledgeable source told Saishin. The Asia slimming exercise is part of a broader campaign for Ofo's international business as the cash-strapped company faces increasing pressure at home and abroad from top rival Mobike. Ofo's decision comes as the company reportedly gets set to leave Australia, where it will wind down operations in Adelaide and Sydney in the next two months, and the company has begun removing bikes from the streets. At the height of its breakneck expansion, Ofo was operating in more than 20 markets, from Singapore to as far away as Los Angeles. But in May, the company launched a 100-day plan to transform itself from cash burner to money earner. Founded in 2015, Ofo and its rivals have revolutionized the shared bike industry by using technology that allows subscribers to pick up and unlock bikes anywhere they can find them, and then simply lock them anywhere when they are finished. But after raising and spending hundreds of millions of dollars in cash, Ofo and Mobike have come under pressure from impatient investors who want them to find a sustainable business model. Ofo has come under even more pressure following the acquisition of Mobike earlier this year by Meituan Dianping, China's largest online services platform. That pressure intensified last week when Meituan announced it will no longer require subscribers to make deposits and will refund existing deposits. A former bank boss who allegedly embezzled nearly 500 million U.S. dollars in one of China's largest bank corruption cases was repatriated 17 years after he fled to the U.S. Xu Chaofan, former head of a Guangdong branch of the Bank of China, was returned to China from the U.S. last week under an anti-corruption cooperation between the two countries. Xu is among several graft suspects who fled China and was targeted by the Skynet operation, a campaign launched in 2015 as part of China's sweeping crackdown on corruption among government officials and state company employees. Xu fled to the U.S. in 2001 and was put on Interpol red alerts. He was detained in the U.S. in 2003 and in 2009 was sentenced to 25 years in prison and has been serving his time in jail until he accepted repatriation, according to a Chinese government statement. There is no extradition treaty between the U.S. and China. Agreements to hand over suspects usually involve long negotiations and complicated procedures. Thanks, Ada. Let's turn now to some of Caixin Global's reporters and editors for a look at some of the bigger stories in the news this week. First up is Fran Wong, senior economics reporter at Caixin Global. Fran, you've got a story on loans and fears that creditors are going to start selling pledged shares. But first, uh, while we've got you here, I'd love to hear your take on the trade war. I hear talk in some quarters that China has something up its sleeve still, but in other places I hear a little more pessimism about China's ability to respond effectively. So how do you see it? The U.S., as everybody knows, unveiled a list of 200 billion worth Chinese products to be subject to an additional 10% U.S. tariffs this week. But what we can see from China's responses, although China repeated the vow that it would fight back, it hasn't announced any list alike as it did previously. I think what China can do is more limited than what the U.S. can. Because one 
Obviously, China imports much less goods from the U.S. than the U.S. imports from China. So it just doesn't have as many cards as the U.S. does in terms of tariffs. Secondly, there is of course speculation that China can attack、uh, U.S. business interest in the country to pressure the U.S. government. However, China has promised that it would protect the legal、uh, rights and interests of foreign companies in China, and attacking American companies in the country will make Beijing look bad in the world, as it is trying to win support from other countries to defend multilateralism and trade. And of course, China understands that a trade war, a full-blown trade war, would do more damage to itself than to the U.S. So it doesn't want to enrage the U.S. further. Very interesting, and thanks for that. Let's move on now to the other story about shares of businesses pledged as collateral for loans.、Uh, can you give us a little bit of background on this? China's stock market has seen a series of slumps recently. Due to disappointing economic performance and trade war concerns, and the plunges have、uh, put at, at stake the control of some entrepreneurs of their own businesses, because for many years small business owners in China have been putting up their shares in their、uh, listed companies. As collateral to get loans for personal use or for short-term cash needs, because they are usually shunned by the banks to get loans. However, the stock market slumps recently have caused the value of their pledged shares to decrease significantly, which could allow their lenders, usually brokers, banks, and trust firms, to dump the shares in the market to recoup the loans. So, what is Beijing thinking or or doing about this? Although the number of stocks under the so-called liquidation line, which is the level that would allow brokers to dump stock pledged by shareholders for loans, is、uh, quite high, the actual disposal of such pledged shares、uh, has remained rather rare because the government is concerned about stability in the market. And they've moved to、uh, strengthen window guidance for the lenders to discourage them from just to、uh, quickly sell the shares. Instead, they are encouraged to negotiate with the borrowers to either extend the repayment on the loans or for other ways than just to dump the shares. And also, the government has already issued regulations restricting share sales, as well as the number of stocks、uh, shareholders can pledge to get loans to curb risks in the market. Well, thanks, Fran. Sounds like the situation is still quite fluid, and we will definitely want to check back in with you to see how this plays out. Yeah, of course. Next up is Doug Young, managing editor of Caixin Global, with two stories to talk about.、Uh, Doug, first, tell us about Xiaomi's long-awaited IPO, which happened last Monday.、Uh, it's been quite a ride already.、Uh, so, what's happening? Well, the story is this、uh, offering finally hit the market.、Uh, you know, up till now, it's been in all sorts of marketing and sales and generating this kind of buzz and that kind of buzz. But the shares actually started trading this week, and the trading debut wasn't a surprise. But what's been a surprise a little bit has been the、uh, performance since the trading debut. What had happened was basically this: the stock was just getting hammered before the actual debut. You know, getting all sorts of it was coming in at the lower end of its range. People were just downplaying the the, the company's valuation, doubting what it what it could do, and 
It actually debuted down about 2 or 3% on its first trading day. But the surprising thing has been that the, the stock has really taken off. It rose, I think, on each of the next four days after that because it, it started out on Monday. Uh, and it's closing out the week up 25% from its IPO price. So what I want to know is what is going on in investors' minds? It's anybody's guess. I guess, you know, maybe it was one of these cases where it was just beaten down so much people thought maybe they were getting a bargain because, you know, it did price very low and and it it fell on its first day. And the actual valuation the company had was almost identical to the valuation it had about three years ago, which is basically then saying it didn't grow at all over those three years. And, you know, it, it went through some tough times then. So it's it's debatable whether the company today is worth as much as it was, you know, sort of at the height of its first peak three years ago. The end, the other possibility is just this is, you know, buddies of late June and, and the banks jumping in trying to pump this thing up. So generally speaking, for these IPOs, you really do have to look more than just the first week to sort of see if this thing has legs, because it's easy to manipulate a stock within the first few days, but it, it starts costing you money if you start doing it for weeks and months, and, and nobody's going to want to do that. So I would say look the next month or two and, and see how it goes. I, I'm guessing it'll probably come back down a bit, but that's, that's just my guess. So, Doug, the second story is an interesting development about a chain with some very ambitious plans. Uh, tell us about this chain. I've seen it in airports, I guess, when I've flown through Canada. Oh, the story is uh, the Americans uh, won't really know this chain, but it's a, a very, it's like a household name in Canada, our neighbor to the north, uh, and it's a chain called Tim Hortons. And it's named after a famous hockey player. It apparently dates all the way back to 1964. But uh, this chain is probably the best-known fast food slash retail chain in Canada. Uh, and their big thing initially was coffee and donuts. And that's still, I think, what they're known for. Uh, they branched into some other things as well. They're sort of like a Dunkin' Donuts of Canada. And they just announced this week that they've uh, set up a joint venture specifically to develop the China market and they've really got a, a pretty lofty goal there. They, they say they want to open 1,500 outlets in China over the next 10 years. So we saw a senior Starbucks team come to China very recently. And uh, while coffee maybe isn't exactly an easy market uh, for China, donuts have not had the best time in the China market. Uh, what is Tim Hortons up against? Yeah, Tim Hortons is certainly uh, up against a bit of history here, at least for the donuts. Coffee seems to be catching on in China wasn't that way at all, uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago. But Starbucks and, and these other chains have really started to change that. Donuts, on the other hand, they haven't done that well here. Uh, the two big U.S. chains that came here, uh, the first being Dunkin' Donuts, they actually failed their first two attempts. And now they're, they're making a third attempt now. And the other one is uh, Krispy Kreme. They came in, uh, they, they also failed pretty miserably. Then there's also this chain called Mr. Donut, which is Japanese, and they have never gotten past the scale of, you know, less than 20 stores or something, and they're all in Shanghai. So this is definitely not a food type that has caught on with Chinese, and your question is probably going to be why. The answer, Chinese all say, you know, it's it's too sweet. That's the thing that they all say. 
uh, Krispy Kreme actually when they came into Hong Kong, I, and I assume when they came into China, they actually cut the sugar content in their glaze by half, and it was still too sweet for the Chinese. So you know, I think there's a bit of that, and then I think there's also just there's the health thing. Donuts are not perceived as a very healthy food. And then the the last thing is just they they haven't gotten the same kind of push like the big dollars that that Starbucks can really put into sort of trying to create a new taste you know for something like coffee or KFC or McDonald's they just spent gazillions of dollars and and long periods of time really getting the Chinese to sort of embrace hamburgers uh, you know it's just not a part of the local diet but you know if you can sort of do the right image, you know, convince people it's a young and trendy, hip thing, sort of thing. You know, it's not undoable, but just donuts just don't seem to have that image, and they don't have the big financial backer that KFC and McDonald's had. Well, thanks for making me hungry, and uh, fortunately, here in the American South, we are awash in donut shops. Uh, we will talk to you next week, Doug. Okay, thanks, guys. Have a good week. And that's this week's show. Thanks for listening. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Tanner Brown with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Lee Xin of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Check out the latest podcast in the Seneca Network, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China podcast, as well as our flagship current affairs show, Seneca. And be sure to follow the news from China every day at SupChina. Sign up for a free email newsletter at subchina.com. Take care.